Romans 13, I'm going to read the first seven verses. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This morning what we want to do is there's three things I want to work through with you with regards to this passage. The first is God's role in government. The second, I'd like to talk to you about God's role for the government. What is government supposed to be doing? And then third, I'd like to talk about our attitudes and actions with regard to government. Now, before we get into those points, I need to set the context in which Paul is writing Romans 13. This is God's word, but it was originally written in a context in the Roman Empire. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, which is in the capital city. There is no more political city than Rome at the time of Paul. We believe that Paul is writing this letter somewhere around 54 to 55 AD. What that means is the previous two emperors of the Roman Empire, number one Caligula, who is a terrible emperor, and number two Claudius, the most recent emperor, and he's not a bad emperor at all. The person who is the Roman emperor at the time that Paul is penning these words is Nero. Nero starts out okay and ends horribly. I say that so that we can understand that in the first instance in which this was written, Paul understands what it is to live in a secular environment, in a government that is not Christian. Paul, as a Jewish person, is familiar with the ways that the Jews have suffered at the hands of government in their history. Foreign kings, Jewish kings, who have not been following after the Lord. Paul is also very familiar that Jesus stood trial before a corrupt judge in Pilate who represented the Roman Empire and experienced a miscarriage of justice. Paul himself will experience uh, the sins of the judicial system in his own imprisonment. 
he will ultimately be martyred under this very emperor, Nero, who institutes systematic persecution of Christians. This is the context into which the original audience heard this passage. And so when God speaks to us today through this passage, we need to understand that God gets how government works. So let's begin this morning by talking about what is God's role in government. And we begin in verses 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. In case we missed it the first time, God has said it twice. All governing authorities are from God. God has established government. Government is meant to be a blessing from God, and those who rule in power in government do so on the basis of the authority that God has allotted to government. This does not mean that God condones every activity that government engages in. All governments, in all time, have done things that God finds to be atrocious. That does not nullify the fact that the institution of government has been ordained by God, and those who are in positions of power are there because God has placed them there. A couple of other scriptures might help solidify this point. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 this is a passage written to Nebuchadnezzar, who is not a Christian ruler, who is ruling over the Jewish people who are in captivity. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and then listen, and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. By lowliest of people, what this means is, God often puts or allows to go into positions of power those of low moral character. I was surprised when I read that. But the truth of that statement is borne out through history, is it not? Even this week, there is a scandal in South Korea around the South Korean president who's embroiled and accused of peddling influence and corruption. But just because there are people of low moral character who are put into positions of power, this does not mean that somehow God is not involved in allowing that to happen. So stunning was that <coughs> phrase in Daniel 4 that I read through some commentaries to say, am I reading this the right way? One of the interesting things that one of the commentators who's commenting on that passage said is that, okay, is there anything we can determine sort of from the Bible as to why God allows particular people to be placed into positions of authority? 
I thought the comment uh, that Stephen Miller made was appropriate. This is what he said. One criterion that affects God's choice of kings is the moral condition of the people to be ruled over. That oftentimes, though not always, oftentimes the reason why God puts into positions of power those of low moral character is it reflects the morality of the majority of people who are being ruled over. My friends, this Tuesday, there will be an election. Many, certainly not all, many of those candidates reflect the moral character of where we are as a country. Not everyone in the country. This should not surprise us. God has often in the past used some who are of the lowliest in positions of power to accomplish his will. That's the point of Daniel. Another passage that perhaps helps make this point. John chapter 19. This is referring to Jesus standing trial before Pilate who represents Roman power, government, and authority. Pilate has just been out listening to the crowds, which as a judge he should not be doing. He's listening to the crowds. When Pilate heard the crowd say they wanted to crucify Jesus, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Jesus, Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is acknowledging that this corrupt judge who is going to pronounce the wrong sentence based on wanting to please the crowd rather than to execute justice, this corrupt judge is there because God the Father put him there. And that God the Father has given him the authority. And when Pilate declares Jesus guilty, he is then executed <laughs> under the judgment of guilty. Now the thing that is a comfort to me in this is that God used Pilate and despite his low moral character, God used him as part of the broader plan of what God was up to. To human eyes, this looks like a miscarriage of justice, which it was. To divine eyes, this is all part of the plan of God and that God used Pilate's low moral character to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus so that God might bring salvation to the whole world. One more example in Romans. Turn back a couple of chapters to Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 17. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, this is the Pharaoh who refused to let God's people go in Egypt. 
This is the Pharaoh who instituted harsh punishment, make bricks without straw, who whipped and beat the Israelite people, keeping them in slavery and captivity. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, the point is, back to Romans 13, all government is instituted by God. And those who have power in government are there because God has allowed them or placed them there. That does not condone or excuse the activities of those who are engaged in government. But it's important first and foremost to understand what God has said about government. Government is designed to be a blessing from God and that God uses government even when people of low moral character are placed into positions of influence and authority. God uses that to bring about ultimately the good he has willed. Since that is the case, that God has ordained government, what is God's purposes for government? Why did God create government? What does God intend for governments to do? There are two things that are given to us in this passage of God's intent for government. The first is in the latter half of verse 3 in the beginning of verse 4. Middle of verse 3. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. God's intention for government, number one, is that government is to commend good deeds and to bring order out of chaos. When governments give tax deductions for tax breaks for charitable deductions, when governments give out medals of honor for bravery, when governments institute laws to control the flow of traffic and things like that, these are blessings from the Lord and government is doing what God intends government to do. No government does it perfectly by any stretch of anyone's imagination, but every government is used by God to do some good. And when governments commend good and keep order, that is part of God's plan for government. The second purpose that God has for government is at the beginning of verse 3 and the end of verse 4. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. End of verse 4. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The second purpose for government is to punish wrongdoing and to hold wickedness in check. Now, when we talk about issues that I said we were going to touch on, in just a minute I'm going to talk about racism and things related to policing in this country. But for right now, this passage and this purpose addresses the fact that those who are experiencing <clears throat> engagement with police, what this passage is saying is, 
if you pull a gun on a police officer, if you are on drugs illegally, if you are resisting arrest, if you are engaged in illegal activity, the warning of this passage is that God has given to the police the responsibility to keep the order of law. And the encouragement of this passage is, regardless of the color of your skin, if you do not engage in illegal activities, you will have less, notice I did not say nothing, you will have less to fear from the government. That is what this passage is saying, and that God has entrusted to those who are in positions of authority the responsibility to keep the order of law. And if you and I engage in illegal activity, we will have more to fear from the government. And if we avoid those kinds of activities, we will have less to fear. So what is God's role for government? God's role for government, number one, is to promote good and to bring order. And number two, it's to prevent evil and to punish wrongdoing. That leads us to the third question, which is what should our attitudes and actions with regard to the government be? Verse one, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Subject is the word submit. What does it look like to submit to governing authorities? Well, Let's talk through a couple of examples that might help make this more clear. I just got done talking about the issue of policing in our country today. To submit to governing authorities is to recognize that the police have the authority uh, to keep the order of law in the country and to submit to that is to respect and honor that authority. However, Having said that, submitting to authority does not mean thinking that every police action and every police person is somehow doing what is right. Racism is a very real sin. It is a very real temptation for all of us to fall into. Police brutality is a reality that happens in certain cases and it is an, abu an abuse of power. To submit to government is not to ignore that those things happen. To submit to government. It is allowable in this country to kneel during the singing of the national anthem or to protest. It's allowable in this country to want the government to pay attention to what's going on. It's allowable in this country to encourage those who are working uh, in police and law enforcement to do so in a way that is honoring to God. Please, God himself is slow to get angry. God is patient. He is full of mercy. He is especially kind to the oppressed while not turning a blind eye to sin and rebellion. It is a good thing for a Christian to want the police force in this country to look as much like God in those things as possible and to engage in conversation, uh, to want police to have body cameras or whatever might help the situation. That's still part of submitting to governing authorities. Okay, what about the issue of voting? 
There is, when it says submit to governing authorities, we live in a democracy. The leaders of the country in which we live that we are being asked to submit to have expressed their intent that we participate in the voting process. It doesn't matter what their motives are for asking us to participate. It's clear that the leadership currently and the leadership of this country in general is encouraging people to participate in the voting process and so to submit to governing authorities is to honor that intention and to participate, if possible, if it's legal for you to do so, to participate in the voting process. That's the encouragement. There is no command in Scripture to vote. But this passage says part of submitting to governing authorities is recognizing that this is their intent and desire and as much as within us is possible to submit to that desire and intention. However, having said that, there are some reasons that a Christian might choose not to vote. Do you remember the story of Jesus from John chapter 19? There he is under government authority and Pilate tells him he wants him to answer his questions. Jesus chooses not to answer his questions because he is fasting from his right to exercise power. Of course, if Jesus is on trial, you've got to imagine whatever answers he's going to give the Pilate's questions are going to make Pilate look rather foolish and prove his innocent very clearly. But Jesus has made a choice, according to 1 Peter, to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He's not being purposefully obstinate by refusing Pilate's very clear request. Jesus is saying, I'm trying to honor my father and do something different than what's going on here. And I'm letting this trial go the way that God the Father wants it to go. And so he's fasting from the exercise of power. As a Christian, you are free to make that choice with regards to voting. For example, as a senior pastor of the church, I'm one of the elders here. I have a constitutional right according to our constitution to vote in elder meetings. For 10 years, I have fasted from that right and not voted in any elders meeting about any issue at the church. That's a decision between me and the Lord and it was a decision to not exercise that power to vote. If you choose to fast from voting because you want to exercise, uh, let, let God exercise his choice and you don't want to exercise that power, that is a commendable reason for not voting. In addition, if you cannot in good conscience vote for one particular candidate or another or one issue or another, now we are in a situation that Romans 14 is talking about. Romans 14 is discussing disputable matters, meaning things in which the Scripture does not have a clear black and white command, such as voting. There is not a clear black and white command in the Scripture to vote. In that case, in Romans 14, we have the situation that Paul is talking about. Look over in Romans 14. We're going to look at verse 23. 
And what I'm going to do is I'm going to replace Paul's example of eating, another disputable matter, what you eat or don't eat, with voting. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they vote because their voting is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Eating is a good thing. Voting is a good thing. There are some times where you might choose to abstain from eating certain foods because your conscience says you should not do that. There are also, likewise, some times in which your conscience may say, I cannot in good conscience vote for this person or for that person about this issue or for that issue. Romans 14 is saying is, if you choose to vote in that case, you would be sinning. Because whatever is not from faith is a sin. And one of the ways we know what the Spirit is telling us in, dispu- in regards to disputable matters is if we have doubts. Now Romans 14 is also clear. This is a decision between you and the Lord. And those who do not have doubts about voting for this candidate or that candidate should not judge those who do. And those who do have doubts about voting for this candidate or that candidate should not look down on those who don't have those doubts. If you have questions about this, read Romans 14. It was written for these exact situations. Romans 14 says, each person must be individually convinced between themselves and God. Who am I to judge another person's servant in regards to disputable matters? Each person must stand before the Lord, meaning every single one of us is going to give an account to God for every single vote that we cast, and if we chose not to vote in a particular election or for a particular issue, it's between us and the Lord. But again, the encouragement of the scriptures is to vote. That is the clear push of being subject to governing authorities. There are two cases that I shared with you that a Christian may choose not to vote, but the encouragement from Romans 13 is to vote. Last example, homosexual marriage. The government in the country in which we live has chosen to recognize that homosexual marriage is an acceptable social institution. Being subject to governing authorities does not mean that a Christian cannot disagree with that. A Christian can disagree with that idea without violating Romans chapter 13. However, if the government wants to mandate that churches endorse and approve and participate in giving God's blessings to that which God has identified as sexual immorality, then our response must be the same as the response of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when faced with a governing power asking them to do something that caused them to disobey God. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. Being subject to governing authority does not mean obeying government no matter what government tells you to do. We obey God, and as much as is possible, 
We are subject to governing authorities. But if governing authorities ask us to do something that God has explicitly commanded us not to, then there is no choice. We are to obey the Lord and no one else. One more verse that will help flesh out what does it look like to be subject to governing authorities. Verse 7. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes, which means people give their full time to governing and they're supposed to be supported through taxes. When you and I pay our taxes, it is pleasing and honoring to God. And it's recognizing that government is an institution that he set up and that we are supporting. If revenue, then revenue. This is referring to the other fees that come from living in a society like we do. This is paying a fee for a passport or to register to your car or or to get a license or whatever it may be. Pay those. If respect, then respect. Now, this is a very interesting one. What this is meant to acknowledge is that three times in these seven verses, those who work for the government are called servants of God, twice in verse 4 and once in verse 6. The word for servant is the word that's used in Romans 12, verse 7, for the gift of serving. It's also the word that we normally translate as deacon. And the idea here is that those who work for the government, policemen, firefighters, the judiciary, IRS agents, elected officials, those who are involved in the government are servants of God. It is an honorable profession. It is a good thing to be involved in. It doesn't mean that every person who is involved in government is doing what God wants them to do, but the respect piece means that you and I owe them the respect of the fact that they are giving their time working in a system that God has set up. And so all those who work in government deserve respect for the fact that they are serving in a noble profession, in an honorable thing, working as part of an institution that God has set up. Last phrase, if honor, then honor. This is the recognition that while everybody who is serving in public service deserves respect, There are some who work on police forces and in the judiciary and elected officials who are not only serving, they are doing an excellent job. They are honoring God in what they're doing. Those people deserve above and beyond respect. They deserve honor. Now, the Bible is also clear in Psalm 15 that as Christians, we are not to give honor to vile people but only to those who fear the Lord. There are some in politics and in policing and in the judiciary who are committing or have committed vile acts. The Bible is very clear not to honor such acts or such people for committing such acts. Respect them, yes. Honor them, no. But there are many who in the midst of the difficulty of working in government 
are doing honorable jobs. And this command is, give them the honor that they are due for participating in the institution that God has set up and serving God through their work. Now, we've talked about some controversial things today. My prayer is that the Spirit would give you discernment. That as you go home and look at this passage for yourself, as you pray and think through, I've told you how I'm applying it to the situations that we have. May the Spirit give you discernment to apply it the way it needs to be applied. May the Spirit also give you discernment on Tuesday as you participate in this election that we have coming up. May the Lord guide you and direct you so that you can stand before him someday and be right with him. But before I leave you, I have one final thought I want to leave you with in regards to these elections and to government in general. When Paul says, if you owe taxes, pay taxes, if revenue, then revenue, if respect, then respect, if honor, then honor, it reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke's gospel where he says, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and give to God that which belongs to God. And the important recognition is Romans 13 and God's discussion about government does not come in Romans chapter 1. What I mean by that is that when God begins his discussion in Romans, he does not start it with government. He starts it with the gospel. And only after 12 chapters of telling us how much God loves us, that God has demonstrated his love for us, that the whole world is given over to sin, but God in his mercy and in his grace has provided redemption and atonement and justification, and that through Jesus we can be right with God, and that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, and that God has raised up Jesus and given him all authority and all power, and that God has given us Jesus' spirit to live within us, to guarantee guarantee that we be able to walk by faith. The reason God begins with all that stuff is that's where the focus is supposed to be. Please, government is a blessing. Romans 13 says that. But as with every blessing, there is always a danger that the blessing becomes an idol. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. They chose to worship the created things rather than the creator. And to be frank with you, there are many in our culture today, many of us who call ourselves Christians, who are guilty of making government an idol. We think to ourselves, if only we could get this person elected, if only we could get these people on the Supreme Court, if only we could get these laws overturned or those laws passed, if only we could get government to address this situation, then my life would be better. Please, that is the definition of idolatry. And the idea is, is God is the one who determines how our life goes, and there is absolutely nothing that can happen on this Tuesday that is going to determine what goes on in this country or what goes on in life. God is the one who sits on the throne. He's the one who raises Pharaoh up. He's the one who put Caesar into power. He's the one who raised up Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. God is the one who does these things. 
Listen, the king's heart is like water in God's hands. He turns it whichever way he wants it to go. Rulers come and go, but those who do the will of the Lord will last forever. Please hear what I'm saying. If God knows how to rescue righteous Lot in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah, when everyone around him is engaged in sinful behavior and the government over him is corrupt and wicked, then know this, God knows how to protect the righteous while bringing judgment on the wicked. God will never let let the righteous be shaken. You have nothing to fear. Those who fear what's going on out there, those who fear the Lord have no fear of bad news. Please, it is an idol to think what happens on Tuesday is going to determine the direction this country goes. Jesus Christ is Lord over all things. He is the one who determines which way this goes. Amen. I encourage you, go out and vote. But do not place your confidence. The Lord sits on the throne. The nations rage against him. And the Lord laughs. They are but dust, a drop in the bucket. And I promise you, if you listen to the news, if you talk to all the people, you're going to get afraid. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of government. Do not be afraid of elected officials. Your fear should be in God and God alone. And I promise you, I promise you, on the word of God, God's unfailing love and his incomparably great power are at work on your behalf. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that can bring you harm. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who? Can any government, can any elected official, can any Supreme Court justice, can any person, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. No plan will bring to success except the Lord builds the house. Please, please don't be deceived. God's on his throne today. He'll be on his throne tomorrow. He'll be on his throne on Tuesday. And the Lord knows those who are his. Jesus says, I hold them in my hand and no one can snatch them out. Be encouraged. All authority on heaven, in heaven and earth has been entrusted to Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And we are one with him.